Can we totally dethrone its power from our lives so that all of our work is devoted to God and God's ways? As Christians, I don't think you can blame it on some evil Hollywood agenda. I think we've abandoned the playing field. The spirit of David and the cracks of the walls and the schemes that we are all running. Is you've got to make sure that your identity is solidly rooted in who you are in Christ and not in having money. If we were to have a business, what would we do with the money? You can only sleep in one bed. Woke up terrified in the middle of the night. We stole my whole house, was shaken. We have been put here on earth to create, not to mimic what might have happened historically. For me, as I pitch, I'm not looking just for the yes, I'm looking for my partners. But I tried Where my heart is most encouraged as a pastor is when I see generosity as the overflow of someone's intimacy with Jesus. And there's a lot of people who want to use their influence to change the world. So how do you actually do it? Investing can be complicated, but it doesn't need to be a burden. Stewardship of the resources that God has entrusted us with is full of responsibility, analysis, and yet it is also a unique opportunity for us all to come to know God's love for us more and His purposes in the world as we seek His wisdom. Here is a place to find other investors who seek the same answers you do and share their stories of seeking to know the best investor and giver of all time. Come for the podcast, stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Investing. Hey everyone, welcome to this very special crossover episode of the Faith Driven Entrepreneur and the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. So what is it like to be married to your business partner? Well, this is the honest and hope-filled conversation we had with John and Ashley Marsh. As co-founders of Marsh Collective, this dynamic duo has renovated 220 plus buildings within 10 blocks of downtown Opelika, Alabama, turning it into the gold standard for small town revitalization. Over the past 25 years, John and Ashley have also guided more than 40 startup businesses in construction, real estate investing, advertising, and restaurants. Through it all, the Marshes have managed to build a strong marriage, but not without heartbreak and close calls along the way. They share some of the pitfalls that they have faced, the challenges that they have endured, and the redemption God has graced them with. Join us for an inspiring conversation with John and Ashley Marsh. Welcome to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. This is John Coleman uh, back with you today, and I'm here with my partner, Luke Roush, who appears to be in some sort of fancy hotel. Live from Chattanooga, Tennessee, Kenley Hotel, downtown, across the street from Chattanooga Choo Choo, big times. How is the Kenley Hotel? It's like a murder hotel, right, Luke? Isn't it famous for some sort of high-profile murder? That's unclear, but there is a speakeasy in the lobby, which I've been told by others that it's uh, quite a good place to imbibe. Fantastic. And what are you in uh, Chattanooga for, Luke, today? Just leisure? Or well, we you, got a little uh, roadshow. We got a little, you know, we like to uh, periodically introduce our investors to our CEOs. And we're going to have an opportunity to do that with a couple of companies tomorrow here in Chattanooga and then also over in Huntsville. So uh, big time. Well, that's fantastic. And I know we're both really excited about today's podcast because we're privileged to welcome folks that we've known for a while 
folks that a lot of people have benefited from their wisdom. John and Ash Marsh are here with us, and it's difficult to really encapsulate who these two are because they're entrepreneurs, they're real estate developers, they're creatives, they're counselors, they generate a lot of witty repartee, and so I feel like this will be an edifying and wide-ranging discussion for folks today. So John and Ash, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. What a great group of guys you are, and thank you for all the work that FDI is doing in the world, and FDI, you are a light in its penetrating dark corners as you share the powerful things you do. So thank you all for the work you're doing. It's making a difference. Well, thank you all for the work you're doing, which we're going to hear a lot more about. You know, just to get us started, some folks will be familiar with you, John and Ash, because you've been on the FDE podcast before. You know some folks in the community, but just for those of you less familiar, give us a little bit of your story. Where'd you grow up? How did you come to know one another, your business partners now, as well as life partners, uh, which we'll dig into, but tell us a little bit about how that came about. So I am from Opelika. I actually grew up in a little mill village here called Pepperell, and I grew up in what was almost like perfect utopia. We had our own school. We had our own churches. We had a little marketplace. It was just wonderful. I honestly did not realize that I grew up on the side of town that was the other side of the tracks until I had to go to school somewhere on the other side of the tracks. I realized that we were poor. And so you didn't know until you find out, right? So anyway, I grew up there and just had a very close family as far as all of my family worked at the mill and my uncles, cousins, grandparents, everything. But um, on down the line, I meet John at about the whopping age of 18, fell head over heels. He was my James Dean, a little bit rugged around the edge, a little bit rebellious, actually a lot bit rebellious. And he was my ticket out of Opelika. And here we are, we're still in Opelika, so that didn't work so well. My claim to fame with John is I won him on a bet. And that is a true story. I got bet that I couldn't get him away from his girlfriend. And um, I'm pretty competitive. So I like to win. And there I go. I won him. So he's all mine now. <laughs> and was that a good investment, Ash? Has that investment paid off? Yes, it did have some negative interest in the beginning of it. <laughs> but absolutely, it is 100% the best investment I've ever made besides following God. That's awesome. In private equity, we call that a J curve. It's that little dip before <laughs> things get better. Right, right. It's just a little, and then it jumps off. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And John, you grew up in the area as well, or what was your background? I grew up in Albany, Georgia, about two hours south. People would like to say Albany. And that's when, you you know, you can know the difference. The test of them is, is it a pecan or a pecan? Once you know that, you've got a true serum on whether they're from Albany. But ended up here at 18 years old. You know, I had this interesting start. My mom and dad tried to have a kid for 13 years, couldn't, adopted me, and 18 months later had my little brother. So my mom put the heavy spoiling on me. She said, I've been looking at empty baby carriage for 10 years. I'm going to love this guy. And he can't do anything wrong. So she still sticks with that. And just they gave me this amazing, you know, time of raising. One thing, I reached out to my birth parents. And I, my father had passed away birth father. But I found my birth mother in an interesting way and didn't really get to talk to her much. But I did tell her, hey, I don't know how the choice worked out for you. But it was amazing for me. And so this amazing story that God would take me from this place of where I couldn't be loved because of the situation to put in an environment where I was taken care of. So my parents loved me. I never had a real job and I still have it. And I started business when I was 14, high-end car stereos, and then just kept adapting. And I believe the same gifts I use today were the gifts I use then. 
just God has continued to refine them to see potential, give hope, and see beauty in broken stuff. So it's interesting to see that, how it's continuing to play out in different iterations. Our purpose was always running under the bottom, even when we didn't use it in a way that honored the gift God had given us. It was still those same things. How did you guys originally get started into real estate? What was your draw there? Well, Ash and I were in the, believe it or not, the business before that, we were in the wreck used car business. So we built totals. We bought total Toyota 4Runners, Land Cruisers, Tundras, and Sequoias and fixed them and sold them. I'd do all the framework and Ash would do the interiors and we were putting these things together and it was a lot of darn work. We'd put all our money in one of them 4Runners or Land Cruisers and take us about a month to do three or four of them and we'd be putting our hands on them and praying they'd sell. We'd put all our grocery money and everything else in the days. Our faith was at a very high level at that time. And then I'd drive to Atlanta and show it to about 50 people until somebody bought it. So from that context, we're in the car business. One way, we bought this old junky house we lived in, took us six and a half years, one paycheck at a time, living in a, about a 600-square-foot apartment, four of us, to fix it. And when we got done, I said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to do another one. She said, what's wrong with you? It was so hard, took so long. So we bought the house across the street, and um, I just started realizing, hey, I think houses are like cars with plumbing. They're the same stuff. And I said, the good thing about it, house sits still and the car goes 80 miles an hour. And so that was started. We just found junky things that nobody wanted. And we say, well, we can't pay for them. We don't have any money, but would you lease them to us for $100 a month or $200 a month? And we'll pay you off in five years. We had no way to do that. But come to find out, there's money in real estate. We didn't have any clue. We just, I thought it was interesting. And I normally change and don't know it. Like, I'll be changing careers and I don't know. Ash will normally tell me, baby, do you know you're not in that? Like I was saying, I want to do these houses. She said, you already left the car business. I said, no, I'm not. I got cars to do in the shop. She's like, no, your heart has left. You're in the house business now. I'm like, I am, huh? So that's kind of how we got going. That's fantastic. And Ash, was it as immediate for you that you developed a passion for I mean, this is a peculiar type of investing, kind of car flipping, then moving to house flipping, I guess. Um, when did it click for you or how did you get passionate about that? I've actually always loved restoration and old houses and historical items. And honestly, I think John never really saw historical homes when we first met the same way that I saw them. He kind of looked past them. But once your eyes get open to not just the history of it, but the actual um, value of the craftsmen and everyone that worked on it and how it really impacted the culture at the time and the community at the time. It, it just changes how you look at them. But um, my grandparents and my dad were all craftsmen. So I was always around people building, whether it's building a room or a garage or spindles on a table or whatever. So I've always just loved it and putting my hands to things. That's awesome. And at what point did you realize this was going to be a successful model? So you're living in this you know, 600 square foot apartment, you're rehabbing that and moving on to something else. Obviously it's grown into something far beyond that, but was there an inflection point where you thought, man, we actually, we're not just passionate about this, but this is a good idea. We can make money doing this. It took a long time. I mean, a real long time. Like how could people be so slow kind of time? It was like, I said, slowly by slowly, it was revealed. Ash and I fixed our house. We're in the middle of the hood. And they're like, why are you fixing it so nice? This place is junky. And so we imagined we'd never get the money out of it we spent on it and the time we took. But we started fixing other houses. And to be honest, 
what got it, so I started doing construction work and I was doing other people's jobs. And so me and Ash started a construction company with like twelve or thirteen hundred dollars. And that's what we started. I just started taking jobs. Now I didn't know anything about this, mind you, but I'm just taking them on. And pretty soon we got like 10 or 11 construction jobs going. We're giving fixed pricing and guaranteed timeframes like we did on the cars. And nobody told us we shouldn't do that. All right. I'm going to have to interrupt him completely because he's not telling you something. So whenever we first started, he was taking on every job he could find. If it was rebuilding a closet for someone, he was doing it. And he was loving it. But what he was loving about it wasn't that he was using his hands. It's that in the middle of doing this, he was meeting all of these people and they were having church wherever he was. So <laughs> he, he would be in there doing sheetrock in a closet and they would be in there talking about scripture. And it just kept going to the place to where people really wanted us or our crew to be on their sites because we were really bringing the presence of just a true spirit of God there. And there was peace around us. And so word of mouth is what spread that. And the next thing you know, it was like John said, then that place of you look up and you've got 10 full construction jobs and it's like, oh my gosh. And then everyone calling and asking, can you move this house? Can you help restore this? Can you come downtown? It's like, it got really big, really fast. And I believe that's just the true nature of organic growth that God shows sometimes whenever he (laughs) blesses it. Well, and the thing, we didn't know what, so I didn't have any crew. So I just got guys from the car business because they seemed like, yeah, it is like a car with plumbing. And so we started working on the houses. We didn't have any construction people, just car people. And then we started saying, well, we need more workforce. And I realized that if I could go pick up the work release guys, we'd pick them up at 5 or 6 a.m. and take them back at 5 or 6, and they ain't laying out on you. I can tell you that. They want to go. And so we had a whole crew of work release people. And so we're having Bible study every morning. Them guys getting saved by the truckloads. It was just, it was crazy stuff. And we didn't know what we we're doing. We're just telling people about this crazy God we found that loves idiots. And we we're fixing stuff that nobody else would fix. And we just thought, man, I, this is so much fun. I said, I see opportunity. I feel like a mosquito in a nudist colony. I just don't know where to start when there's so much opportunity. And it started making me trip breakers. And there was, everybody wanted me and I liked it. And then the city came to me and said, buddy, you got to get some license. I, I got to have license. They're like, yes, you can't be doing this much work without a builder's license. So I had to go take study and take the builder's test so I could get some license. But you know, in that too, John, the amazing thing is being trusted with a little as always, God blesses you with much. And the little that we were being entrusted with, I mean, we're talking about thousands of dollars at a time. We weren't doing as big a deals as we're doing right now. Actually, when I started our checking account for our construction company, we had $1,172. And that was it. That was all we had. And we had to be really wise stewards with that. But even with the men that John was going and picking up at work release, He developed such a trust with our judicial system and the judges and everything that they would call and actually ask, hey, can we place this person with you guys? Because we know that you'll be faithful to teach them and to steward them as a relationship. And so we had a lot of young men come out of that that actually started their own businesses. And it's just been incredible to see that God blessed us in the midst of us really not knowing what we're doing, just being willing to be faithful with what we had. I think of one young man that came recently, he owns a huge roof, commercial roofing company. I got him out on work release as a college kid that got a DUI and he was locked up and then he did something else and got locked up. He got out on work release, learned roofing with us. And now he's running, I mean, a monstrous roofing company. So it's interesting. We just said it isn't just witnessing this witness. I just tell him, go stand beside that godly guy that's done got healed. And you just, when he goes to the bathroom, you sit outside the door. When he goes to lunch, you're sitting with him. You commit two years, 
You do that, you read your one-year Bible, you pray, and you come to work every day. And I'm telling you, your life will change. And they have. So it's not just witnessing, it's witness. And I think that, you know, it's not just actually fixing broken buildings, but also what you're really getting at is actually how God might use you guys to be participating in fixing broken people, of which we all are broken people. And you've made the comment before, John, around the way you approach real estate and the passion that you have for it is a mixture of making both your economics teacher and your Sunday school teacher proud. Talk through that a little bit. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, and a lot of that came from the original idea. Jess Carell's helped me a lot with thinking this through because it really is a challenge. But what God showed me when we were idiots and broke is that the answer is in fishes and loaves. You measure, you manage, you multiply. And what happens is you measure, you manage, God multiplies. That's, you know, one of the fruits of the kingdom is the fruits are love, light, and multiplication. Well, you see multiplication when God showed up everywhere. And so what we began to realize is that if we didn't measure things well, how in the world could we manage them and how could God multiply them? So we were just as passionate about investing into broken lives and making movement, whether it's get them a budget, get them reading their one-year Bible. The good thing about reading the one-year Bible we love, you get a bunch of guys reading the one-year Bible, you link up when you read the same piece of God's Word over and over. And I'd have guys, did you see what David did? I was like... God said he loved him. I know he messed the dang thing up. He said, I ain't bad as him. So we get on the same page. And what we began to realize, we wanted to move their lives and help them understand that if they measured and they managed their money, according to God's word, it would multiply. But if they did that with their life and their family, it would multiply. And so that's how, if we don't feel like if we can only please the economics teacher and not the Sunday school teacher or the Sunday school teacher, and not the economics teacher, it's not for us. That's our spot is to do both. And to be honest with you, we don't consider deals any other way. Well, you know, coming out of, look, what's interesting is you're not traditional real estate investors. You dove in head first, kind of fixing these places up, a totally different model, getting guys off work release, you know, patching together these teams, not unlike how we brought Luke on the Sovereigns team, actually, but <laughs> unusual in the in the real estate space. Um, you had to have made some mistakes along the way. It couldn't have all been smooth, you know, as you built that. What did you what did you learn from some of the mistakes you made along the way? Mm, my heart sinks when you say that, how many mistakes we made. Our not to do list is beautiful. We had tons of times where we felt like, you know, we caused the defecation to hit the ventilation. We just did the dumbest stuff you can think of. But the challenging thing was that we didn't know and didn't have anyone who could help us. So some of the problems we would do, number one is we, um, you know, we didn't understand that the mindset to go from being a worker to a leader to an investor, all those are chasms to get over when you're broken, right? I mean, one is, I just got to survive. They're like, I put everything on the line. Well, you didn't have nothing. That's like putting up nothing. You know, I mean, you didn't put any down if you don't have anything, but then you start building and stuff starts moving and you you have a little bit. And what one of our mentors did, he told us, he said, John, you see what the guys in the construction business you're working with, their vehicles are pickup trucks with Tempe spares on them because they don't, they ain't buying good tires for them. He said, do you want to drive the kind of truck they drive and live the way they live? I said, no, sir. He said, do nine jobs for other people and do one for yourself. 
And so he gave us this mindset of beginning to put some back and do some for ourselves. What that did is really helped us understand. But as we began, and I hope we get to some more of the investing part for us as investors, we did. And my number one failure in business, I think, in the early days was that we played amateur providentialists sometimes in other people's life and ended up hurting people. Because I had the gift to understand business. We could put money behind them. And sometimes we'd put money behind people without experience that didn't have the character to handle it. And we just helped them crash a car at a higher speed. And that's probably one of the biggest things we messed up with our investment dollars. We called it a rent-a-dream program. We needed rent and they had a dream and we'd invest in them and just, it produced a dang mess. So, you know, I'm so glad you brought this up because it's, I think, something that a lot of leaders wrestle with as companies grow, you've got to be able to recruit other people who can do what you've done previously. And you got to be willing to let them stub their toe. You just got to make sure that they don't, you know, end up with a massive chest wound, (laughs) but like stubbing toes, skin and knees, that's okay. How do you figure out what the guardrails are as you invest in individuals what is sort of okay kind of learning by doing and some amount of minor failure in that versus, you know, a total high speed wreck. How do you make those judgment calls, Ashley and John? Yeah, honestly, we've learned that we want to make sure that we spend time with people and understand who they are at the core of how God made them and how they really process information, how they make decisions, how they show up, whether they're under stress or not. And that has been key for us to really work well with our team and work well with our clients that we're bringing on. So if we were looking to, like we actually had a young man that came and visited with us not too long ago about opening a catering business. And this is, he's a wonderful young man. And like we really like him. But just to be honest with him to say, but we don't know you and the capacity of how you handle your money. How do you steward your time? How are you behind the closed doors with your wife? How are you whenever you are with your, and that sounds like you're getting too personal, but those are the things that drive how people really will show up whenever pressures happen. And what we were doing previously, like John said, was we were doing it off of what we thought their capacity was, or we were doing it off our belief or our hope for them. And that's a lot of weight for someone else to carry, you know, whenever they think, you know, I believe in you so much. So now you have to run and succeed and they'll give it all they have, but they only have so much of that. And so John and I spent a lot of time doing due diligence with the people that we're working to invest in, whether it's our time or our money resources, because both of those are very obviously very valuable. One of them can be reproduced and one of them cannot. So, you know, to us, our time is the most valuable thing that we can give to someone. So what do you have to say about that? Well, two or three things. One thing I'd say is people don't see the world as it is. They see it as they are. And so we get like, give you an example. We build restaurants now sometimes in service of growing downtowns, hospitality businesses. And we'd have a fine dining chef come to us and say, and this happened to us, cost us a bunch of money. So it was a good one. He came to us and said, I'd like to just open a simple hot dog place. Well, next thing you know, we got $12 hot dogs because he's gourmeting them up. No matter what somebody tells you, they're going to be who they are, not what they want. And so if you got a fine dining guy, don't think you're going to get him a hot dog because that thing will go gourmet. He'll be toasting both sides of the bun and putting all kind of special sauces on it. And so we realized we got to ask ourselves, who are they and their identity? Because identity drives behavior. The second thing with that is doing this personality testing. We want to ask ourselves, are they a future voice or a present voice? Do they stand in the present and go, okay, tell me what is? Or do they stand in the future and go, tell me what could be? Because the stand in the future kind of people saying, tell me what could be like me, we're highly excitable. 
And sometimes I think we're guilty of being high energy and low IQ was a powerful combination. I mean, you get some stuff started, but um, like Ash, one time she gave me a representation because she would be running all the money and back end before she took over all the companies a number of years ago, which made me feel a little bad because she's done such a good job and made me look like I was less intelligent than I even think I was. But so anyway, we're standing at the dryer and she says, hey baby, and I'm talking, wave my hands. Oh baby, I tell you what I wanna do, I wanna do this. She'd hand me a box, hand me something else, hand me this. Pretty soon my arms are slammed full. And I said, what do you want me to do with all this stuff? She says, that's what you do to me. And so I would just keep piling stuff on, starting stuff, getting excitable. About the time something new, the honeymoon went out of it, I'd jump to something else and hand it over to her. Now this thing, I've got it going. Somebody needs to make this thing. The trades run on time. And so we run now off a EOS type of system that we've adapted for our marriage and for our business, which we call Visionary Integrator, the same way they do. We believe we need a Walt and a Roy Disney in everything we're building. And um, if we're going to invest in them, we got to have somebody who's going to make the trains run on time and somebody who's going to get excited and stir stuff up. Well, talk to me. So one of the things y'all touched on that I love so much is you've talked so much about the importance of the individual person that you're investing in. And I think Luke and I see this across asset classes right now. You think entrepreneurs or owner operators or others, the person is what you're evaluating almost first before you look at anything else. But there is a lot of complexity to the type of real estate investing that you all are doing, particularly as you've approached rejuvenating whole towns like Opelika. You've really taken a lot of ownership. Talk to us about the mission of the real estate investing that you have now and things like community revitalization and how that intersects with good business principles for the types of investments that you choose. Well, one thing we say is we call the work we do now, we've coined it irreplaceable real estate. The reason we say it's irreplaceable is it's been built by people who don't live anymore with materials we don't have anymore and methods we don't do anymore with entitlements we can't get approved anymore. So that makes it special. And then when you layer Ash's gift of hospitality, which is her gift, and that definition is I thought of you before you got here. She said that's what God did to her and does to us. We layer that and great programming over it. We get something that's quite incredible. And so our main focus now is helping now 10 cities steward large amount of real estate. We're over a billion seven in, diff, in the portfolio size that we're in. We're helping them steward to make economic, social, and spiritual capital. And we want it to make all three. I mean, that's the story of the Good Samaritans, economic, social, and spiritual capital. But people think the money is the problem, and we believe the money for us has never been the problem. Money follows vision. Vision doesn't follow money. You don't get money and then the vision come clear. You get a good vision, a clear plan. And so first thing we do is have models, okay? We model everything. Our business uh, approach should look any private equity, any other real estate investor ought to appreciate and see sophisticated real estate development approach to it. Now, we do it in a multidisciplinary way. We look from the very top and from the very bottom. We look from the investor's point all the way through the deals, through construction, development, all these things. But we also go to the operator's point. And so some of the questions we say is not just how much can we make in rent or our return, but how much should we make? 
And then how can we align above that? So if we're starting a restaurant, we'll say, let's give them the best rent we can. We'll go in, maybe invest in the business and the leader. And then we'll also have the real estate and we'll give them the best rate we can to get to break even. But then we ratchet up more percentage-based rents as they succeed because they're succeeding. We want to. And remember, in the restaurant business, the first million's got a little bit of money in it. Second's got more. Third's got more. It's exponential because the hard costs don't go up so much. And so it's bringing sophisticated filters and alignment to that whole value chain. That's the way we believe from every bit. Like some cities, our largest city, Winter Haven, Florida, they bought up a good bit of 80 blocks of downtown. It's close to a $200 million portfolio. And a hundred million of that or close was raised from 60 locals. So it's a community development fund with some very unique characteristics of getting liquidity when they need it, of ownership and care in a city you're in, of a distribution model that makes sense. I mean, these are the powerful alignment tools of placemaking that we think allow us to forge and pioneer what we're calling a new asset class of real estate, which is irreplaceable real estate, historic downtowns, lovingly restored and curated in a sophisticated way. So one of the things I've heard you speak about before is this idea of starting lines, finish lines, and deadlines. How do you kind of overlay those constructs in with this idea of irreplaceable real estate? So Ash, I'll let you, maybe you want to tell a little bit about like how we work with these projects from hospitality and other things, how we layer that in to doing deals like Say, for example, we did Pi Social or something like that. How did you and Ty and that team of hospitality focus on that? So what um, I believe we do really well is we help people remember their story. And they un- to understand that what they're selling is the experience, not the business. It's really easy, I believe, for creatives to think that they just have a great idea and they have a plan with that idea, but they don't really understand the execution of it. And it's a daily execution of beauty, of experience, of knowledge, and of execution. And so our team comes in and actually makes sure that they understand their story, understand who they are in that story, and understand how to actually bring the client or the customer into their role in the story. You know, That's one of the things we do. The other things I think that we do really well in that is making sure that we hold the proper tension on the vision and don't let them get astray on it. Because as we all know, because we are entrepreneurs, it's really easy, especially if you're married to an excitable entrepreneur, it's very easy to get distracted with shiny things and new things and you know new opportunities or new ideas. And we'll pivot and change and pivot and change. That's very expensive and it takes a lot of time and it gets you off those deadlines. So, you know, making sure that you have people on your team that are working with you, like John said, that you got to have that visionary that's out there doing those things and helping you hold that vision, that helping you also dream big, but then to have the other person or people that are there to keep things in order and in check and on the timeline and making sure that construction happened the way it needs to happen and so forth. So that's how we, I think we work well with making sure we have those timelines and deadlines and, and making sure we meet those and honoring the vision. We say we're like general contractors for vision, but what we do is we created, we took a scrum method from software development, the agile process, and we adapted it for project and city and community development. And so we run two-week sprints with teams. We have a backlog. We have an upcoming sprint. We have a current sprint. We have a refined sprint. We have a done sprint. And we run two-week 
intervals with that, with the week in between being an agile meeting between one of our team leaders and their team leader. And so it's holding the tension on the 20% of the things that if they don't have special attention, will never get done. And what we do is we draw lines in the sand because everybody works better if you got a deadline. We have to get to something. So we'll set a launch for a restaurant. We'll set a launch for a hotel. We tell them, so listen, now you can wait till the end and work 24 hours a day. And people are going to sit in wet paint, but we're opening. We don't care. We already have, we're going to do it. And we've always worked good. We don't do projects without a deadline. Because one thing about making a plan and making a deadline is not just what it does, it's what it does to you. It makes something of you to set a deadline. And so we do that with them and we make sure we line up the economics to it too, where they get incentivized, excited about it. Everybody on the project should be excited about hitting that deadline. And we don't, we don't miss deadlines. It's just not what we do. We tell them come hell or high water, we're going 24 hours. If we get closer, we ain't going to make it. So we get real, but we've done fixed pricing, guaranteed timeframes, construction for all these years. And if you didn't do well, you wouldn't been in business very long. So that's, I think it's powerful. You know, it speaks a little bit to the whole salt and light thing. If all you are is light, but there's no salt, then every project ends up slipping past. So you got to be able to have both. And from my observer's perch, seems like you guys dance on that line really, really well. One of the things I want to come back to is this idea of irreplaceable real estate. And, you know, just as investors, kind of marketers, we always think about kind of market size. I'd love to hear y'all riff just for a couple of minutes on the market size for small towns in America that need to have life breathe back into them and, you know, both TLC, but also some accountability in redevelopment. Maybe just speak to how big is that opportunity? It certainly is bigger than the two of you can do, but maybe for listeners or other people who are out there in the real estate arena that might be thinking about trying to infuse more meaning in what they do day to day, maybe just share a little bit of how big are we talking about? It's a good question. I mean, I just know it's it's so big that it breaks my guessing machine. Like when I think as far out as I can think, I go, oh my gosh, it's bigger. I tell Ash, I feel like, I said, baby, even a blind dog will find a bone. We have landed on something that is amazing. I get so darn excited about it. And it's because, I mean, we're already stewarding the type of portfolios we talked about. We're just getting started. So, I mean, it's billions and billions and billions of dollars. And the greenest houses that exist are ones that already exist, not ones we'll build. And the most attainable houses that exist are the ones we don't have to build. They exist. And the most amazing materials that were trees that from the time that Adam was here till we cut them exist hidden up in these historic structures. I mean, think about today, they want to make and say that a sheetrock box with drive it on it is worth the same thing as my 100-year-old building with a two-foot-thick masonry wall. It's beautiful. I mean, that's dumb. That's some banker said that the daggum amortization term determines value. Well, that's only if you're looking out 20 years. We're looking 50 or 100. We're asking ourselves, what could we do for the good of our city that would last 50 years and no one be able to undo it? So I'm dreaming. I was talking to a guy recently, two guys I've had call me in the last six months that said, John, we'd like to deploy a half a billion dollars in the things that you're doing, this type of work, from families that were out of the country, one in Hong Kong, another one in Brazil, and then we'll deploy it for 50 years. And so I believe that what we're talking about, the cost of redeployment of capital and the velocity of capital 
is so powerful if you can do it over generations and understanding that guys, what we have is irreplaceable. They're not building another downtown Opelika or any other small town. And you just think how many small towns we drive through that sit there with embedded value that people don't know how to do anything with. And you know, if you ask them, they say, can we do something with it? It's impossible. And so our job is to take people from impossible to possible to probable. We've proven this model can be done in towns as small as 3,000. So yes, it's everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere we go, I'm tripping breakers. I told Ash, we ought to buy this place. Like You say that everywhere we go. I just think it's amazing. So our goal now, we started doing this, didn't know what to charge, but we had godly people. We did it for fees. Then we started doing it fees and we did some equity. So we're their partners. The third iteration of this is fees, equity, and we bring capital. That's what we're doing now a lot of times. And so I think the fourth iteration will be, imagine if there was a sophisticated design instrument, a fund that could bring shared services to this type of work, could restore cities and could give people like Ash and I and others a way to have liquidity at some point for generations to put it in there, a stewardship vehicle that could look out 50, 75, and 100 years like we do for our portfolio. We're over 275 properties we've done in our city. We still own over 200, and we've never taken outside capital. We put our butts on the line, personally guaranteed it all the way through. And so imagine what we could do with a little bit of, a little bit of additional horsepower. Amen. Man, I'm like ready to open my wallet and move to Opelika after that. <laughs> you should. It's the center of the universe. So, I mean, you'd be in a great place. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, we're going to pivot to a very fun topic. I think, Luke, we almost have to employ a lightning round here. It would be a violation of our fiduciary duty not to. But just very briefly, before we do that, talk about faith again. Ash talked about it at the beginning. Obviously, you're casting a vision for community here but on a day-to-day basis, how does faith influence your investment strategy to tie that together for us? Two things I'll say, Ash, and then give it to you. One is unity and the other is peace. If Ash and I are not in unity, we don't move because the place of unity is a place of commanded blessings. We want unity between each other, unity with the Spirit. We get on our knees and ask God. And then with also, we want the multitude of godly counselors. There's wisdom. But then that second thing is peace. We believe the place of peace is a place of power. And so we look for people of peace and places of peace, and we want to operate in projects that have peace around them. And so if those two aren't there, we don't go forward. So I totally agree with John, but also the fact of pause, being sensitive to when the spirit says, hey, pay attention and pause for a minute. We actually had one of our mentors give us a question yesterday that he's just like, I just, I would like to throw this question to you for you to consider for you and Ash to talk about and consider. And whenever John brought it to me, instead of, you know, bowing up and thinking, but we've already decided and we know God's going to bless him. We've already did it. It's like, you have to pause a minute and say, Hey, wait a minute. You know, this is an opportunity for us to, again, hear really the direction God wants us to go. And to remember that, he is the one that directs our path, you know? And so it's like, allow that, allow that movement to happen and to be adjusted. And that sensitivity brings the greatest peace into our home, I believe, and into our businesses and everything, because we will absolutely slam on the brakes if God tells us to stop right in the middle of the road and don't care if we get creamed. It's just like, it is what it is. 
and on all of the other things with unity, John and I had such a broken marriage and so many broken parts in our business very early on that when we found the unity and the peace that God gave us, we refused to move from it. And so staying unified and trusting God, honoring one another, honoring the gifts of each other, that keeps us in that place of unity and we can be effective there. That's awesome, y'all. So we are going to conclude before asking you for a good scripture reference at the end with a short lightning round. The rules are Luke and I will pose a question and then we'd love to get 15 second responses from y'all. So short and sweet. I'll kick us off and then pitch it over to Luke. Uh, Best and worst investment you've made? The best investment is buying up a downtown when nobody wanted it. The worst investment we made, we allowed somebody to sell a restaurant to a new operator and learn to find out that the guy who can fly a 747 can't necessarily build one. That cost us a couple million bucks. <laughs> That's a All right, so I've got one for Ash, and then I'm going to turn around and John's going to get an opportunity as well. Ash, what's your favorite saying that John uses? And you can't use the mosquito in a nudist colony because that's my favorite. That one's off limits, but anything else is fair game. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so we actually have a thing called Johnisms, and it's an actual language. You know, I don't know if you ever used to watch Veggie Tales, but I used to tell them all the time, you know, you can't correct the language of the king is what the little cucumber said. Anyhow, I would say dumb as a sack of hammers is one. That's a really good one. Doesn't translate well in other countries, by the way. They don't know what to do with that when you say it. <laughs> Let's see. another Because he uses mosquito in the nudist colony a lot. I'll have to come back on the second one. Dumb as a I'm saving that one. I'm saving that one. One of mine is the goal is to disappoint you at a rate you'll stand. And we're on a journey that looks like a detour. Oh, I've got a word he uses, two words that he uses that are so interesting to me. He says golds with a D instead of goals. And he he says miracle instead of miracle. I don't know if that's a Southern twangism or if that's just his words. (laughs) Well, and the goal of our companies is front row seats to miracles. That's awesome. You know, we say, God, we want front row seats to miracles. 50-yard line seats, God. They ain't got to be our miracles, but we want up close. We want to see that. And I guess the other thing is that, you know, as you think about this, I say marriage is complicated. It's more complicated than your transmission. And I used to think it was just about sex and supper, but there's a lot more to it. (laughs) I feel like the lightning round actually just led itself to a conclusion there, Luke. We got a lot of good aphorisms in. We love to conclude this podcast just by asking each of you, if you don't mind, for a piece of scripture that's really influencing you right now that you're learning from just to take us home. So John and Ash, anything that you're reading in the Bible right now that's really uh, changing the way that you see things or that you'd like to share? I can start, I guess, as well. It's this Galatians 2.20, you know, the idea that we are crucified with Christ and not I live, but Christ lives in me. On further study, that word is co-crucified. Not only are we co-crucified, we're co-resurrected. And so something happened a very long time ago that's very significant today, that we've been co-resurrected and we don't get eternal life once we know him, we have it. I'm riding in a dirt suit, but all the power that raised Christ from the dead is inside this crazy person. And that just blows my socks off. You know, the fact that God loves idiots and he's got a plan. And if I've got hope for my future, I got power in my present. Wow, that's powerful. What's speaking to you, Ash? 
Well, my scripture that I always hold on to and I come back to is Jeremiah 29, 11, which is, I know the plans I have for you, but the, actually what I love is in Jeremiah 13, where he reads on, he's like plans to prosper you, not harm you. And then he goes into saying the very place that I've caused you to be driven and held captive is the place I'll deliver you from. And there was a time in mine and John's life where we tried to escape Opelika. I mean, hard. We tried so hard to get out of here. <laughs> I mean, we felt like this is not where we were supposed to be after we reconciled our marriage, after we crashed businesses, all the things that were happening. And God brought us back here to use us as a seed and to be used so beautifully. And so that is my scripture. I, just, I keep it in my mind and my prayers every day is that he's the one that knows the plans and he's the one that caused us to be here. And it's such a blessing to be here. Wow, that's powerful, y'all. Well. I'll tell you, doing a podcast with y'all is like being a mosquito in a nudist colony. Uh, That was a lot of fun. I think we could talk to y'all forever. And I know we're really grateful both for the work y'all are doing out there with these irreplaceable communities, the way in which you're lifting up individuals within those communities, and also just for sharing that wisdom with us and with the community here. So thanks so much. It was great to have you on. Thank you. Appreciate y'all. Thank you guys. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve this community and see listeners come in from more than 100 countries. Faith-driven investing can be a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a group study with other investors looking to get the same answers to questions you have and find great community as they do so. There's no cost, no catch. In person or online, you can meet an hour a week with other peers from your backyard or the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvesting.org. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends. Executive producer Justin Foreman, intro mixed and arranged by Summer Dregs, audio and editing by Richard Barley. Our theme song is Sweet Ever After by Ellie Holcomb. 